0: the hell is going on what's really going on we said what the hell happened you don't have to know what the hell is on it Did they see what's going on i don't know what's going on what is going on we must find out what is going on
1: hi i'm danielle Fletka.
0: i'm mark Thiessen.
1: welcome to our podcast what the hell is going on? So, Mark, what the hell is going on?
0: Well, two things are going on. Number one, Thanksgiving's coming up. So a little housekeeping note. We're going to go on hiatus during the week of Thanksgiving. And so this will be our last podcast before the holiday, but we'll be right back after Thanksgiving. But you can play us an endless loop and listen to all of the podcasts that you miss. It's a holidays are a great time to catch up on what the <laughs> hell is going on, right? <laughs> and what's the second part? The second part is, this is the coolest podcast we've done so far, I think, because we have literally a world historic figure with us today. Today, we've, we're we interviewing Lech Wałęsa, who is the leader of the Solidarity Free Trade Union movement that brought down literally one of the 10 most important figures in the 20th century, I would say. A man who challenged the Soviet Union and helped bring down the Berlin Wall, helped bring about the collapse of the Soviet Union, world historic figure. And we've asked him to come to talk to us not so much about the history, because we just did an episode on the fall of the Berlin Wall and looking back on that period, though he will tell us about some of that, but looking forward to what are the lessons from his experience in bringing down totalitarian regimes for the people who across the world, and particularly in Hong Kong, are challenging totalitarianism right now and trying to advance the cause of freedom.
1: I think it's hard you know, in, this, in this sort of post-Cold War era, especially given given how much has passed since the fall uh, of the Soviet Union and the Soviet empire, to explain what a huge figure this man is. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize. He really—he he was public enemy number one to the Soviets. He was in so many ways the inspiration to all of the hundreds of millions of people who were captives of the Soviet communist empire. And what's interesting Is obviously it's great to talk about the history because you know anytime someone is a part of history, you want to hear from them. You know these these things are are not to be missed. But there's so much going on in the world today. We've got demonstrations going on that have been going on now for months in Hong Kong, and we have seen people shot. We've seen uh, mainland police oppressing uh, students occupying universities. We've seen intimidation, the likes of which only the Chinese really know know how to execute. And yet these people come back again and again and again into the streets of Hong Kong, demanding their freedom, demanding the ouster of, of the Beijing puppet Carrie Lam, uh, who is their leader. And so, you know, it's right to ask, what are his lessons for them?
0: Because he succeeded. So, I mean, the parallels between what's happening in Hong Kong and what he faced today are incredible. So there was a Grassroots populist movement that rose up to challenge a puppet regime of a foreign empire, which is basically what's happening in Hong Kong today. You have a puppet regime led by Carrie. I use exactly the right word, puppet leader, to describe her. There is a border with a evil empire, where there are garrisons of their troops already inside the territory of Hong Kong, just like there were garrisons of Soviet troops in Poland, and there are large numbers, even millions of troops on the border ready to come over and threatening to come in and crush the movement. And Lech Wałęsa in Poland stood up to that and was successful in his battle to bring about a free Poland. And so today, people in Hong Kong really ought to be looking to his lessons and his experience to see what tactics did he use, what principles did he follow, how did he succeed in achieving what they are trying to achieve today.
1: Although I, I will say, I was reading a couple of interviews he's done on this visit to the United States. He did a pretty inter- interesting interview with foreign policy. And, you know, they were asking the same sort of questions about his experience. And he is pretty critical of the role of the United States. Yes. So, you know, really sort of says, and I think there's hardly anyone who could disagree that the role of the United States was indispensable in the destruction of the Soviet empire that you know they had us to look to and we were the as Ronald Reagan said the shining city on a hill and he argues that that's not what we are anymore and I'm I'm really looking forward to sort of hearing what he has to say about what role the United States can and should play is
0: and he's also very cognizant of the differences between that time and now, because the Solidarity, um, you know, movement started. I mean, the push against communism was much earlier, but the Solidarity movement started around 1979, and it wasn't until 1989 uh, that the wall fell and, the, and that Poland was freed, and they had the roundtable discussions, and there was a free election. So it took ten years, and he seems to think that with the advances of technology today that it doesn't really take that much. Because if you think back, you know, I wrote a thesis when I was in college in 1988. I wrote my thesis on the prospects for Polish independence from Soviet domination. And within the period of time between I wrote it and it was graded, it became a history thesis instead of a political science thesis, because it happened, right? But I went to Poland and I spent three weeks traveling around with the opposition in Poland as a college student, recording interviews with all these solidarity leaders and the different factions. I went to Dansk, where the solidarity movement started. It was in Warsaw, Wroclaw, Krakow. And they were showing me, for example, they had underground newspapers, which were printed in people's basements, and they used shoe polish. And people would take these pieces of newspaper and they would read them. And see. like today, we, if you even read a newspaper, you use it for fish wrap or you throw it away. These were precious. They would pass it from person to person to person to get free information, to break the monopoly on information that the communist regime held. Today, the communist regime doesn't have monopoly and in information they control the internet but these people have cell phones they have the ability to communicate so they're they're literally they're having a protest they can say in 1 second okay the police are coming over here Another protest will pop up somewhere else. They can, in real time, using GPS and communi- modern communications. So he thinks this can go faster in Hong Kong than it did for him.
1: He's absolutely right. But technology is also in the hands of the yes, bad guys. that's right. Right. So, you know, uh, one of the things we've seen that the Chinese have done is that they've leveraged their influence in U.S. business. Everybody remembers the NBA scandal. They've leveraged their influence with American technology companies like Apple to force them to take off the App Store and to take uh, away from the students the tools that they use to gather, to move around, and to share information. I mean, again, there's always going to be a workaround, but the Chinese are a different enemy from the Soviets, and the times are very different. And so at once empowering and uh, at the same time, you know, a, a tool in the hands of, of the oppressor as well. Well, I can't wait to have this conversation. I think we're going to learn a lot. I think you guys are going to love it. So
0: without further ado, Lech Wałęsa. Pani Prezydencie, dziękuję za tą wizytę i że z nami dzisiaj today, I want to talk to you a little bit about your history and what's happening in the world today. So 40 years ago, you led a protest movement that faced down a communist puppet regime in Warsaw. The Soviet Union had garrisons of troops in Poland and hundreds of thousands of troops on the border was threatening to come in and restore order. And here we are 40 years later and in Hong Kong, there's a protest movement that is challenging a communist puppet regime. And there are troops stationed on the border, ready to come in. Do you see parallels between your experience and what's happening in Hong Kong today? Are
2: all your questions that long? I'll try to keep it shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, you mentioned 40 years, and I think you are gapping the time because the struggle against communism had started in Poland much, much earlier. It was imposed on Poland as the system, and we never accepted it. So the struggle against the communist regime had gone on for much longer than just 40 years
1: but something made it work the very
2: concept of solidarity was very simple if you had a burden to lift up and it was heavy and you could not do it yourself ask somebody to help you, to lift it up for you. And our burden was huge because it was the Soviet Union and the Communist regime. So this was really a heavy burden. So we first motivated the whole Polish nation. That was not enough. So we needed the support from other European forces. That was not enough either. Only once international global actors came and joined us, Japan, the United States, Canada, we succeeded. We got rid of the burden. So in that sense, if the strategy of solidarity is adopted in Hong Kong, it can prove effective, victorious if it is followed. On the other hand, back in the 1980s, we did not really want to go and clash too violently. We wanted to survive because we expected that the result could not come straight away. So we wanted to save our forces for the future fight, for future combat. I have not the least doubt that the ideals that Hong Kong is fighting for will prevail. The only trouble is, and the only question is, when and at what price?
0: So if you were able to sit down with leaders of the Hong Kong opposition movement, what advice would you give them? And would you be willing to go to Hong Kong and meet with them and stand with them? Yes,
2: I would be willing to do that. And quite simply, because the ideals that they are fighting for are not against anybody. They are fighting for the ideals that are in favor of the good progress of the world. So I would like to help them. And I think the whole world
1: should be helping them in Hong Kong. Do you think the world is ready to stand by the Hong Kong protesters? You really have to
2: check out your opponent or your partner, whether the partner is ready to accept the development when you win. Maybe your partner is not ready as yet maybe you will still suffer the defeat and only retake your combat later on, when the partner matures to face good solutions. When I was involved in my struggle, nobody in the world believed we could be victorious. I consulted the big leaders of the world, prime ministers, presidents, and even some kings, whether we stood any chances of winning against communism, and none of them Not even a single one claimed that we stood the least of chances. We were controlled by 200,000 Soviet troops based in Polish territory permanently, plus another million of Soviet troops in the neighboring countries, plus silos with nuclear weapons around. Obviously, the power of continental China is enormous. But the arguments that people fighting in Hong Kong present are more and more serious, and more and more throughout the world, they are appreciated. My only question, as a revolutionary, that I would ask is how many more blows need to be given and how much more blood will need to be shed for China to accept the good proposal that Hong Kong has.
1: So one of the things that you said should worry, I think, the people of Hong Kong, that your fight started not in 1989, but in fact in 1945, which is true. But you fought for almost half a century before the Polish people were victorious against the Soviet Union. Is that kind of time necessary? This is a very new fight for the people of Hong Kong against communist China. Oh yeah, I don't think
2: they should really be concerned with such a lapse of time, because when we first started our struggle, we would communicate using pigeons. Then maybe some odd phones could be used, whereas now they could communicate in real time instantly. So things are moving much, much faster today.
1: So one of the things that I saw that you said about, about politics in general is that we keep applying old solutions to the new era. This, What you're describing now is a, a new solution. What would you say is the most important next step for this group of mostly young people who are trying to restore some sense of democratic rule and freedom to Hong Kong?
2: Well, I believe they should really be applying this new technology, communication technology, mainly to create, establish their solidarity, solidarity amongst themselves, but also solidarity with the leaders of the world, taking advantage, benefiting from those communication technologies, they can much faster communicate their goals and their needs. Do you think
1: technology... Using technology and the establishment of that solidarity movement should be the first step?
2: Protests and demonstrating on the streets can be a solution, but I would consider it the final one. I guess they first need to establish the communication to make sure that they know their goals and their organization. And only then, once they are grounds prepared, maybe they can go onto the streets to give the final blow. If continental China realizes that those people protesting there have the support of the whole world, their approach will also differ, because they would not want to lose their friends worldwide. I hear that the United States has come up with some positive signals to send the protesters in Hong Kong. That's obviously great, but maybe that's not enough. It has to be the support coming from all the other nations throughout the world, for them to realize that those people are fighting for peace and stability and good solutions, that it's not for destruction.
1: You sound worried about the fate of these protesters. I guess that
2: right now, forcing protests on the streets, demonstrations in the streets may really make them vulnerable to a blow. And that is the trouble. As I was saying, first they need to establish that solidarity, also solidarity with the rest of the world, getting support, and only maybe then can afford this final blow with demonstrations on the street. And we were involved in our struggle, too, also with arms and with protests. But we never wanted to go into the final clash. Whenever we were, we realized we were losing. We would just try to avoid it, to save strength for the later struggle. Like in boxing, you know, you can give a blow, but then you try to avoid the opponent's blow.
0: So you you mentioned the United States leadership. The U.S. leadership obviously was incredibly important to the success of solidarity in Poland. One of the concerns you've raised during your visit here is that there is no leadership in the fight for democracy around the world and that America sort of stepped back a little bit. What would you like to see the United States doing not just in Hong Kong, but also in support of democracy around the world.
1: In Iran, in, in Lebanon, in uh, all of the places yeah. where we're seeing anti-government demonstrations right now. Back
2: then, the leadership of the United States was clear-cut, very transparent. There was this evil empire. So naturally, the United States was the good empire. So the roles were pretty obvious and clear. Now that evil empire is no longer there, we need to redefine the position of the United States, its role, and how it should act to really be the leader of the world. We need to integrate ourselves in much larger structures than just countries. We need to change the platforms that unite us. Because what we can see looming on the horizon is this era of intellect, information, and globalization. This new era is still an empty concept, which we need to fill in with content. So the first question will be, what should serve as the foundation for the new structure of the new world?
1: What should serve
2: as the economic system for this new structure? And what shape should democracy take on? And that's how I understand the leadership of the United States. Find the answers to these questions.
1: You seem to think the United States cannot play the role it played in that older era you describe. That's why
2: I see it as ourselves, including the United States, finding or being between the two eras. One that has collapsed and the one that has not fully emerged yet. And that's how I see the leadership position of the United States. It has to help decide on this final shape. After all, the United States is the superpower. In Europe, we have opened up borders, We've introduced a single currency. A citizen of any member state can travel, can work in any other member state. But we have reached a certain cul-de-sac. And we do have this question arising, what should be the foundation of the new structure which we are establishing here? Every country has a different foundation to the extent they have different religions. And if there are so many discrepancies, it's impossible to establish one solid structure. So, we need to reach a consensus among all the countries, all the member states, on a short, very brief constitution. Look at what's happening with democracy right now. I was always taught that democracy is about the majority, whereas now, the majority do not take part in the election. And I foresee that it will be even worse tomorrow. And I foresee that only those running for offices will take part in the election. The rest of the people will not take part in the elections. Disenchanted with the politicians, seeing all the corruption going on, which will mean that we will continue having worse and worse leaders, unless you listen to old Valesa and he will tell you what to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we are listening to you, and I have a and I have a follow-up question about this, this undefined new era. Do you think that because the post-cold War, the post-evil empire, uh, good empire, era is done and is less defined, is that the reason why so many countries that have gone through revolutions are now backsliding? From our perspective, this is one of the most worrying things is you have a dictatorship, you have a revolution, and then you only have a brief period of democratic rule before you backslide towards dictatorship again. This seems a really bad cycle. The
2: answer is very simple, because the United States is not the leader to the world. The United States is not giving up proposals. And since new proposals are not provided, all the demons from the past awaken. God gave us the whole world, all equal. It was we who divided the world. It was we who invented the borders. It was we who invented and introduced divisions. And it was we who cheated one another. It was we who inflicted harm on one another. It was we who led to great disproportions within the world. This technological advancement forces us to integrate ourselves in larger structures. That's what is actually imposing on us. And it keeps saying, open up the structures, level the disproportions in development, instead of raising walls. Raising walls is a mistake. Of course, there is a challenge. But because of this disproportion in the standard of living in both countries, for example, we have to find different solutions other than walls.
0: So one of the things that is being proposed to fill this void, shockingly, is socialism. That 30 years after the collapse of communism, which you helped bring about, the world's a lot better. There are more democracies than there ever been. Poverty has been alleviated. Free enterprise has created uh, prosperity in enormous ways. Yet here in the United States, 58% of young Americans think socialism would be a good thing for our country. And I think there's similar numbers in other countries. Are you concerned that after defeating Soviet socialism 30 years later, people are looking to socialism again?
1: The trouble is that
2: we have given the battlefields to populists and demagogues and they claim saying stupid things and tired people believe in what they say. Politicians avoid confrontation with populists. And actually, whatever the populists say, wherever, it's entirely stupid. For example, I love anti-globalists. They organize a rally, they come over from different countries, they will be there, you know, saying bad things about the reformers, etc. And then they move aside after the rally, take out their mobile phone, and inform the media how heroic they have been during the rally. They should be using pigeons to communicate. Because if they oppose globalization, mobile phones are just the best symbol of globalization. So, if we took a closer look at the populace in every other field and aspect, they are so rarely serious. The trouble is, we don't really discuss with them. Those people, they met in one country, they had come from other countries. Someone must have reached an agreement for them to be able to travel freely from one country to another. So, that was the global attitude that they had taken advantage of.
1: So, you see the world differently than it once was. A world not made up of countries with borders? My
2: dad died in the Second World War, guarding the Polish border. If I had the chance to chat with him, and if I told him, Dad, you perished because you were securing Poland, and you know what your son has done? I have opened up the border. There is not even a single soldier guarding the border between Poland and Germany. I wouldn't be able to finish that very sentence because he would immediately die of another heart (laughs) attack. That means you're not guarding the border. And we have accomplished all this during the lifespan of one generation only. This is the direction to follow. There's no question whether but how? And for this, we need the wise United States as the leader to identify these issues in our life that need to be reformed for us to be able to develop and then convince others that the solutions they propose are good and let them implement them.
0: Exit question, final question. God was incredibly important to the success of the Solidarity Movement. Pope John Paul II came and had a mass where a million people in Warsaw were chanting, we want God, and that empowered your revolution. But Pope John Paul II also traveled to Cuba, and it didn't work in the same way. And it seems the world is becoming more secular as it continues to fight for democracy. How important is faith to the success of the freedom movement?
2: Communists had a very simple strategy they followed, never to allow the opposition to integrate. So whenever the opposition tried to get integrated, they would disintegrate that movement, and they would ridicule us, saying, you are so few. What power do you represent? Can't you see the 200,000 Soviet troops? And by doing so, they really frustrated the Polish people and the whole world who never believed that there was a possibility to bring communism down. But the second millennium of Christianity was coming to a close, and God really listened to our prayers and made a poll of the pope And what he did, he integrated us because otherwise we were unable to do it. But he brought us together, not for fight, but for prayer. But this had an impact in the sense that we realized we were really many. Almost all the Polish people flocked to meet with the Pope, different locations throughout the country. Even the communists and the secret police were there. They even learned how to cross themselves. They didn't know the proper words needed for the cross, but they would say like, one, two, three, four and the sign of the cross was there. We knew who they were, many of them at least, and we were looking at them with amazement, and we realized they couldn't be too communists. They were like radishes, red right on the outside only and white on the inside. And this meant we were no longer scared of them. So obviously, not the Holy Father was involved in the revolution, he brought us together. That was the role he played, and the opposition, the dissident movement downstreamed all that energy of the crowds and led them to victory.
1: But that miracle didn't happen in Cuba, even though the Pope went there. As for Cuba,
2: there was no dissident organization that could turn into the leader of the grouped people. When two Polish people meet, they will always establish three political parties between the two. But if you come across two Cubans when they meet, they will establish five political parties between the two. That's why they failed.
1: It's really, it's been an honor for us. Thank you from from Mark and me. And I know that the people of Hong Kong are very much awaiting your inspiration in your visit. If they listen
2: to what we have said here, and if they go in that direction, they will be victorious.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So to quote Mark Thiessen, that was an incredible conversation. Because
0: every conversation we have is incredible, Danny. Yeah, it's true. And especially when you've got Lech Walesa.
1: It's true. And, you know, I I feel like I was in the the presence of a person who really made history. But one of the things that That he left me with is this sense of frustration. You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we saw all of these former captive states, that's what we used to call them, former captive states freed. And while Many of them have gone on to great heights. Poland has had free elections, Hungary, Romania. There are still serious problems in a lot of these countries, and there is democratic backsliding. And if you look at my part of the world in the Middle East, what we see is that there are these demonstrations like the ones that are going on right now in Iran, like the ones that are going on now in Lebanon, like the ones that have been going on in Egypt, like the ones that went on in the Arab Spring. And, you know, the people go out into the street and they demand democracy. And then they get a little bit of change, and then nothing
0: happens. I think what he underestimates a little bit, and I think we all underestimate a little bit, is how much other regimes have learned the lesson of his success, right? So, you know, it's like in sports, what do you do when when you're playing another team? You go to the game film. And you review their tactics and their strategies, and you come up with ways to counter them. And so, Voensis, we, we just had a, after the interview, we went upstairs and had a lunch with some of our scholars here at AI. And he told a story that he wasn't able to share here, but he talked about how a German delegation came to Warsaw just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And they said that they thought that it would, it would be a long time before the Berlin Wall fell. And lo and behold, it fell while they, and he said, the Berlin Wall is going to fall and it fell while they were there, literally, while they were in, in uh, Warsaw. Nobody expected him to succeed. He, was, he talks about how nobody said you could succeed. Right. And he did succeed, and he took the entire world by surprise. And so the, the Chinese regime, the Iranian regime, the North Korean regimes have all studied this and figured out what did Gorbachev do wrong right? And one of the things that Gorbachev did wrong is that he wasn't willing to kill 10 million people. He wasn't willing to uh, you know, truly, brutally suppress uh, these dissidents. And they've learned the lesson is that the only way you survive, you're not going to survive with glasnost and perestroika. You're not going to survive with reform or compromise. Right. And so they crack down right. uh, in a way. And so it's a different challenge that Hong Kong faces now, that the people in Iran face now, because these regimes are willing to do what Gorbachev was not willing to do, which is to kill a lot of innocent people.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I think that when you look at, you know, the government government of the Islamic Republic of Iran, when you look at the Chinese government in Hong Kong, when you look at the government of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, these are people who were completely willing to murder and in future will be completely willing to murder anybody that puts the regime at risk. You're totally right. This is The lessons that have been learned are really important. We spend so much time focusing on you know, all of the good things. But of course, there are just tons and tons of lessons for bad guys as well. And one of them is don't give them an opening. Don't give them a crack. Don't let them wedge part the system. Because uh, if they get in the door, you know, you're never going to get rid
0: of them. No, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, you see that the people in Hong Kong are using different tactics. Solidarity was a peaceful, they followed the principles of nonviolence. When there was violence, it's because the regime cracked down on them, not the other way around. In Hong Kong, uh, the people have figured out that violence was the only way they were getting any, any traction, that when there were peaceful protests, no one pushed back the extradition laws. Only when they stormed the Legco, the legislature, and tore the place apart, that the puppet regime backed down. So they're using slightly different tactics as well.
1: Well, I hope that they have the same kind of success that Solidarity had in Poland. I tar- and I, I have to say that I relish the idea of Lech Wałęsa going and standing in the streets of Hong Kong with Joshua Wong and all of the people there who have so much courage to stand up to the Chinese government and the Chinese efforts to suppress peaceful efforts uh, of Hong Kong
0: people. Well, he made that offer right here on this podcast. So Joshua Wong, Hong Kong leaders, if you're listening to this podcast, Lech Vuentza is willing to come to Hong Kong. So extend the invitation because he's ready to come and stand with you in the streets of Hong Kong as you stand up to a communist regime.
1: Maybe you can make history too. Thank you all for listening. Have a very happy Thanksgiving and we will see you after the turkey.
0: And our team here at AEI is Alexis Hantry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at AEI.org. Or you can reach us
1: on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to
0: this. Thanks for listening.